it's Brian here. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Go Be More podcast. Today's show is a real treat. Longtime listeners know that I talk a lot about self-efficacy, which is the belief that you can accomplish something based on how much effort you put into it. And one of the ways you can boost self-efficacy is by finding someone you relate to and basically saying, if he can do it, I can too. Well, today's guest is former marathon star Peter Gilmore. But before he was a marathoner, he was a runner for UC Berkeley, where I looked up to him as an example of what I thought I could become. I spent an entire summer training with the mantra, if Peter can do it, I can too. It was fun to share this with him 20 years later and to get to know more about how he accomplished all he did in his amazing career. We dive into how he got started, his inspired trip to Kenya, training with Jack Daniels, and most of all, how he continually evaluated where he was versus where he wanted to be. Peter was chock full of insights into goal setting, going all in, focusing on process over results, and being true to yourself. Honestly, I just feel like this is one of our best episodes yet. But before we get to it, let me remind any new listeners about who we are at Gobi More. At Gobi More, our mission is simple. We want you to chase your dreams. So how does a clothing company help people chase their dreams? Well, I'm glad you asked. The clothes we wear are like every other part of our physical environment. They not only represent us, they reinforce who we are and who we're committed to being. When you wear a Gobi More shirt, you're wearing your personal commitment to Gobi More, to chase those dreams. And what better way to show someone you support them than to give them a physical symbol of your belief in them? We want the words Gobi More to remind you of your dreams every time you see them. As for this podcast, this is our chance to explore what it means to Gobi More with the people who inspired us now and 20 years ago and then to share those stories and strategies with you. As always, if you have any feedback, you can email me at brian at gobimore.co, or you can hit us up on social media. All right, here's our chat with Peter Gilmore. All right, Peter Gilmore, welcome to the Gobimore podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me. It's really great to be here. Yeah, no, we're excited to have you, Peter. It's been a long time. We got to connect recently, but I'm excited to learn more about your story, man. We've had some connections throughout the years and, you know, it's just exciting to learn a little bit more about your journey and get inside of what it was like doing what you were doing at the, at the highest level as a marathoner. So thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, it's going to be a fun chat. All right, Peter. So let's go back to the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about your family growing up in Pacific Palisades and how you got into running? Sure. So growing up, my mom was a runner. She took up the sport when I was born. I was born in 77. She took up the sport in the old running boom and gave up smoking after I was born and started running, which is a good thing. So I grew up kind of tagging along with her. She'd go to 10Ks, you know, back in the early 80s and I was a little kid. And eventually she would, with my nagging her, she'd, she'd sign me up and give me a number. And I, I didn't run 10Ks, but if there was like a kid's run or whatever, yeah, nice. actually like the 5K. So I'd, I'd go out and do them, but it wasn't like a, I wasn't in a kids club or any of that youth track stuff. But in junior high, we had a, a really good running program at PE where they had like course records and different events you could do. And they kept through the years, all the records, there's a big board in the hallway to the locker room. And I was always really inspired to try and get some of those, those marks. And eventually I did, and I won the, the school championship and got the record there. So it was that kind of positive reinforcement where there's something that, you know, it's a combination of maybe being a little naturally good at something. And then that inspires you to work hard at it. And then you get a little reward for it. And it just kind of snowballs from there. And so, yeah, that really took off. And then one of the teachers at the junior high took over as the track coach my first year at the high school. We shifted schools. 
And so that really was a catalyst for myself and a bunch of friends to join as ninth graders during the cross country team. And it was just fun. We had a group that were all around the same age and, and we were competitive in our little local area. So again, it was the same kind of thing. You get a little taste of success and it just grows from there. It's kind of funny. Actually, that's my first taste of success was around fifth, sixth grade. And it was like one of those PE miles, like those fitness test miles you have to do when you're a kid. And so they sent us all out there. And then right before the mile, one of the teachers was like, oh, by the way, the fastest anybody's ever done this is six minutes and 50 seconds or whatever they say. It wasn't a particularly fast time when you think about it in the big picture, but you know, you're fifth grade or something. And I heard that time. I didn't even know what that meant, but I was like, well, I could beat that. And I just started running as fast as I could. And I, just, I don't know how to pace myself, but I just ran and I ended up running something like 620 or something like that. And, the, and, and they were like, hey, you know, uh, maybe you should run. Like you're a pretty good runner. <laughs> and the, there's those little moments that sort of trigger you. Even though I didn't run in any formal sense for years after that, it was one of those memories that gave me this little reinforcement that like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a good runner. I broke that record four years ago in fifth grade, you know? Yeah, it is definitely something you got in your back pocket and, you know, it inspires you for the next thing that then push you a little further down the road. Yeah, absolutely. Did you do any other sports just out of curiosity or was it just running for you? I did everything. I was okay. really into baseball, basketball, never really football. I guess I was, it, it wasn't that big of a deal, like the Pop Warner stuff where I grew up, but the other one definitely yeah. I was a pitcher. I played a, a year in high school, JV ball and baseball, and I joined the swim team like the YMCA swim team. And I think I was probably like eight or nine years old, maybe 10. I can't remember. But anyway, I do remember one distinct thing about that though, is on the basketball court. I was always the guy before that who was super winded all the time. I like get to my face and turn bright red and uh, it was different than it was later. But after joining the swim team, that totally changed. And then I would never get tired. So that was really the catalyst that kind of unlocked whatever aerobic ability I had kind of latently in there that, you know, started you know, becoming more apparent, but that was, I just remember that distinction on the basketball court after joining the swim team that really made a difference. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I think um, that you seeing that change in yourself from doing a sport, which is just sort of effort-based, right? Like the same sense with running. I think I always look for those times when you see some tangible benefit from the activity you're doing. Anytime you can kind of find that a little bit of a reward is so big. I'm, I'm thinking more about my daughters right now, honestly, in this sense, like uh, they're mm -hmm. doing sports and the things that they're trying to do. So here's the example. My daughters are doing figure skating and one of my daughters is super flexible and just wants to stretch all the time because she's good at it. Like she doesn't, it's not, you know, and then the other daughter is not flexible and does not want to stretch because she's not good at it. And we try to talk about finding these ways to, to stretch that doesn't feel like you're just stretching. You, you want to find some way to sort of do some activity that is making her more flexible and that she's enjoying, she's doing it because she's enjoys it, but she's going to get the benefits of the flexibility and the figure skating later, you know? Yeah. It's gotta be fun. You got to structure it in a way that it has the reward and it's social. And to some degree, it makes it kind of a fun thing. And, you know, now as I'm older and I say, there's two parts of it. One would be setting the same kind of thing you were talking about, but for my kids, trying to figure out ways to get them incentivized or enthusiastic mm -hmm. about different things. But even in my own life now, as a you know middle-aged guy setting those kind of goals. Now I know you can trick yourself. You can set the goal that you know you're going to be able to get. It's not going to be that easy, but you're going to give yourself, you're still going to feel great when you get to that. It, it still works. You're just more self-aware of the whole process. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel the same way with regards to thinking about goals as you get a little bit older and the contrast, you know, having uh, kids and thinking about how to set them up to want to work hard, like we've learned how to do and taught ourselves how to do, but also 
kind of helping them to keep perspective on it, you know, because if it isn't fun and we're not teaching them how to have fun and how to kind of like approach improvement and goals and achieving goals with some sense of some level of fun, I think that we're teaching them how to approach things in a way that's not fun. And I'm like, well, I want them to still have fun. I want it to be exciting. But as I get older, I'm thinking the same thing. I'm like, well, I want to get in really good shape. Like I was telling Brian, I kind of hurt my back recently. And I'm like, is that a reflection of getting older? Uh, Or is it also a reflection of other things that I should be doing, but I'm just not really motivated to do. I haven't found the right motivation to do it. And I think it's a little bit of both. (laughs) I just turned 39. But I also feel like my desire to work hard in anything, there's got to be a greater sense of purpose other than just, oh, I want to do that thing. It's like, well, is it fun? How long do I want to do it if it's not fun? Those kinds of things. So that's definitely kind of like at the core of everything I do for sure now is like, I I want to enjoy it, even though I know I'm going to work hard. I still want it to be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I think that gets back to the point of kids not being too focused on any one thing. I I was super into all these different things, but there wasn't any one thing until, you know, maybe 10th grade, something like that. I kind of narrowed it down more to the, you know, distance running. And of course, you know, school was there and all the other stuff. But as far as other sports go, everything was on the table for the years before that. Mm -hmm. And that makes a big difference because it's fun. and, And also, you know, I'm 44 now and I'm still running. And I still like it, but I got to say that if I was like, I, I actually did one partial year coaching a youth track club and I was pretty horrified by what I saw from the coaches and the parents and the other clubs. Interesting. And it was, it was not a cool scene. Like it was not something that I would necessarily endorse since you want to have a longer career in the sport. Was it just because um, it was too intense, too focused on trying to be good now? Or was oh, there any absolutely, particular? Absolutely. That, there was there's that aspect of it it was the kids were way too into you know first of all the coaches were, were pounding them through intervals and stuff like that and they were like <laughs> you know 10 like for I mean, yeah. come on yeah you, right, how long right. you you know yeah you can you can max the superstar kid out and they're gonna run up whatever a five minute mile when they're in seventh or eighth grade um, or even faster some of them but you know what happens to that kid when they're you know if they actually are really talented you don't want them to peak out then you don't want them to peak out in high school you want them to be like what we're seeing with this new generation of distance runners that are just running sub 13 5Ks, running 350 for the mile in college indoors. You want them peaking out in their 20s. And that's just not going to happen if you're if your coach is giving you 15 quarters to do when you're, you know, 11 years old. Like forget about it. No, that's <laughs> like 100% it's not going to be true. fun. Yeah, and and you don't develop all those other skills you get from doing the team sports or from doing the the sports that just require a different form of athleticism, right? One of the benefits of doing all this different stuff, and there's a lot of research about it, is that even a lot of the best athletes, when you look at their childhood, they weren't super focused on one thing. They were doing lots of different stuff. And it was later when they really decided what they want to do that they started to really excel, but they had this broad base of skills that they developed and both mental skills and physical uh, abilities that they could draw from to become better at what they were doing. Yeah, totally. Totally agree. It's funny that there's that moment though, when you're maybe 19, 20, 21 years old, when you, if you hadn't been doing it regularly up to that point, when you go out and try and play a pickup basketball game, or like touch football, and you've never been sore the next day before in your life. And then you're like, oh, my dad. <laughs> <laughs> There's some point in there when that starts happening. Because before that, it didn't really matter. You could just go do whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. It's interesting to talk about that. And, and I'm probably going to steal Brian's question. But I think it'd be kind of cool to talk about your rise in the sport of running, Peter. And specifically, you know, obviously, 
at some point in high school, it's probably started to click for you. I'd love to touch on that and then also talk about your experience running at the collegiate level as well. Sure. So high school was interesting. I had a really fantastic coach, Joel Kahn. He passed away a couple of years ago and he was somebody who had a big impact on a lot of people's lives in a positive way. So I owe an incredible debt of gratitude to him for a guy, not just me, but a lot of my friends too, in, in, in a positive way. In high school, I was good, but not great. I was good in LA, in the LA area. I won city championships and stuff, but I also was aware enough, which was a little bit harder to do back then, to be aware of how good you were in a larger context. Now it's real easy because of the internet yep. to know how good everybody else is. But back then you had to do a little more digging to, to see. And I, so I sort of knew my place in, in where I was. I knew I was at a certain level and wanted to be at that next level. So I worked really hard because it wasn't good enough for me to be where I was. I ran a uh, mile and 417 and two mile and 915 in high school, which are great times and I'm proud of them. But there were plenty of guys that didn't have to go too far to meet who were fashion. And that was good enough to get, you know, I got into Berkeley. I got into UCLA. I was one spot away from getting into Stanford because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been Lenana coached me years later. And so he, he walked me through that, what that decision process was because they didn't tag my entry and I wasn't quite smart enough to get in on my own. But uh, that would have changed my life forever because I probably would have gone there. But nonetheless, it was getting into college was like this step up. And you guys, know this it's your first year in college your first month in college you're running cross-country meets and you're running mm -hmm. against basically men and you're still basically a boy you're running 8k which is five miles instead of the 5k or three miles you did in high school you're yeah. running these massive hills it's just like trial by fire and then on top of that i was in the pack 10 so i got within a couple of years we had i don't have the count on the top of my head but probably eight or nine olympians in the race in the conference finals future olympians you know, medalists, you have the, the best team in the country, you have the second or third best team in the country, you know, it was intense. And, and it was the yeah. exact same thing where I knew I was good. I was, you know, one of the better guys on my team, but I also knew real easily that I wasn't great. And I wasn't at that highest level. I never was an all American in college. I had some races where I thought I ran above my head in a way that showed that there was something more there. Mm -hmm. that I could be better. But I had a few stumbling blocks too with injuries and a couple other things. And so it never quite clicked to the degree I wanted it to. And I was super driven. You know, nobody was going to outwork me. Nobody was going to be more into it than I was. I was just, I had an endless well of enthusiasm for, for the sport, for training, for racing, for setting goals, like all that stuff. I was just really into it. And that sort of hasn't changed even to this day. It's always endlessly interesting to me how you can set different goals and accomplish different things in, in different ways in this sport. And, and that's sort of an evolving process from, you know, high school to college. And then afterward, when I got out of school, it was obvious to me that I kind of wanted to keep trying to get better. Mm -hmm. And there were some pretty logical ways to go do it. There were some good clubs around the area in the Bay Area. I didn't really want to move. So I stayed around. Actually, the thing that I did that was a little non-traditional is I went to Kenya. When I finished my undergrad, this is 2000. I graduated in May of 2000. I was on the five-year plan. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I knew that um, I was kind of working a part-time job. I knew I wanted to keep training. I didn't really know what to do, but I knew that those guys were the very best. There's a book that had come out called Train Hard, Win Easy by Toby Tanzer. Yes. And it, it, this time, now this is like, again, I keep sounding old. This is pre-internet. So it wasn't like people knew that much about what Paul Turgot or Daniel Komen or any of these guys were doing over there. You got little bits and pieces of it, magazine yeah. articles. But that was the first book where somebody went there who was like um, coming from the perspective of somebody in the US or in Europe 
going to Kenya and saying, this is exactly the kind of training these guys do. Here's how they think about it. Um, and it's radically different from what you're doing. And yes. it's a stupid decision probably to do exactly what they're doing, but the departure, the Delta between what they're doing, and what you're doing is enormous. Yeah. And the Delta between what they're doing and the best guys here are doing is also enormous. So clearly they're doing something different. And so my thinking was, I got to get over there and see this for myself, which if oh. you're ever going to do it, to do it at 22, 23 with no real obligations in life is the best time to do it. So I got some airline miles and um, flew over there without a real plan. It's a pretty funny story. I, I didn't know who to contact. So I, I wrote David Monty of the New York Roadrunners. Yeah. And I said, I didn't know him at all. I knew him later through marathons and stuff. He's a great guy. But at the time I didn't know him. I just wrote him cold. And he said... There's a group that trains there with Patrick Sang, who's a, a steeplechaser. They, there's a restaurant called Sizzler. It's not the same Sizzler as the one here. <laughs> if you go to Eldoret at the Sizzler, you'll meet the guys. That was my plan. <laughs> wow. I got on a plane, flew around the world by myself. That's so funny. And that was my plan. I got a hotel. This is, I mean, it was a dirt road city back then, Eldoret. I don't know if it is now. I assume it's not. But I stayed at this pretty scary hotel and didn't find the Sizzler. <laughs> didn't know anybody. I'd go out for a run. There'd be like, no joke, like a hundred kids running next to me. I would, there was no white people anywhere. It was, it, Eldoret wasn't like the big city. It was out in the country. And I was out on a run like the second or third day, just basically freaking out that this whole trip was going to be a bust. And there was a guy running on the side of the road. He was clearly like good. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I went over to him and I said, <laughs> And I, he noticed me right away because uh, I didn't fit in much there. And, and, and hundred kids hey, you know, chasing you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I said, well, you know, what's, do you, I don't know what I said, either do you speak English or what's your name or whatever. And it happened to be Julius Aishan, who was the NCAA champion in the 800 a year or two before a really fast. I think he ran like 144 or something. And I knew who he was because he was like on the cover of Track and Field News. He didn't know me from anybody else in the world, but he gave me a few tips. He told me to go find the Kano family because they had a, a store in town. So oh, wow. I did that. Uh, the sporting goods store. And so I went in there, Martin was there and Bob was there. They both been at Arizona and I didn't know them, but I knew enough people in common and they invited me to come stay at their place because their parents ran a, a huge orphanage that was also a, a IOC training center. It was a place you could basically have a room, like a shared room, a shared bathroom. And if you wanted to train with them, you could, if you wanted to, you know, do your own thing, you could. So, and they'd give you meals and stuff. So I ended up there for six weeks, total lucky chance and i trained with mostly with martin a little bit with bob and they'd drive me up to Coptagot, which is if i remember it was about a half hour drive up the hill from seven thousand feet where we were at to something above eight and there'd just be like a group of 60 hitters just waiting to run every morning and then there'd be like two other groups of like 60 like they were doing their own thing and wow. they'd have some coach that'd give them some kind of structured workout. And there were some studs there, Olympic medalists, world champions in the group. Daniel Coleman was in that group. So we'd go up there about once a week. And the other days I would run with them around um, Eldoret and basically just struggle to hang on. So I came back from that with this whole different perspective. It, you know, so I'm landing back in the U.S. I'm 22, 23, whatever it was. And I really want to keep training and end up joining the farm team, which was yeah. really kind of stepping up from being a really cool, but low key thing under Jeff Johnson to being a much more kind of institutionalized thing under Vin Lanana and then later Gags. And Vin, Vin always had my back and I ran against him. I was at Cal, he was the Stanford coach. And so he, he knew a lot about me and he had recruited me back in high school. 
And so he welcomed me really with open arms and, and I really enjoyed running for him and, and with the guys, especially like the Housers and some of the guys who I raced against a lot in college, he basically just kicked my ass left and right, getting out to train with them, getting to know a little bit as people. It was, it was a fun group. I, I still have a lot of close friends from that time. Can I ask um, you real which quick? Then, you know, yeah. Peter, not to cut you, cut you off, but about the change in perspective, like when you came back and you came back with a change of perspective, but then you also joined the farm team, which had a system that, you know, Vin had his system. I don't, I'm not intimate with wh- how it worked, but can you talk a little more about how you thought differently about your goals or, or about running as a result of that trip to Kenya? Yeah. The, the single biggest thing is that it reinforced the notion that you could work a hell of a lot harder than you thought you could and still mm-hmm. not burn out if you did it smart. And if you didn't do that, you better be like the most talented person in the world, which I wasn't. <laughs> so I learned at that point that like the path for me getting to where I wanted to be, which was at a high place. I didn't want to be like an average runner. I want to be really good. I wanted to make an Olympic team. That was my goal. And I, you know, that would be shooting for the stars for me. Yeah. Um, I knew that I had to find some way to work really, really, really hard. And I needed, it was going to be hard to do it on my own. I didn't really want to do that. Um, but there was this huge club of folks who at the time were, you know, these people coming out of school or had been out of school a little bit, they were just gravitating toward Palo Alto. And it was right there. I mean, it was like a 45 minute drive for me to come to the workouts that first year. Later on, I moved down there. So it was a lot closer. Yeah. But that was the big thing. It was the mental, again, it, I never even realized this thread of thought until we started talking about this. But um, <laughs> the high school, you're good, but not great. And you have an understanding of just the difference between those two things. You're self aware of the fact that where you, lie in the grand scheme of things and the same thing in college and then that kenya trip was like the biggest slap in the face ever of you know where where you lie on that when like the 14 year old kid who works as like a day laborer all day just toasts you on the morning run and then he goes and like digs ditches for eight hours and then goes out in the afternoon run with you too yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah it's insane i i just gotta say just a comment on that notion that idea of you could work a heck of a lot harder than you ever thought and not burn yourself out. Like there is a nuance to it, right? I mean, you can't just go all out as we've seen it. I'm sure we've all seen it on our teams. Brian and I obviously were teammates at UCLA and I've seen guys that just would, you know, put in what they thought was a smart thing to do. Like, well, if I run more miles then obviously I'm going to be a better runner and that's not how it works. It's, you don't just add it up a whole bunch of miles week in and week out and not have any plan or strategy around that. But the thing that I did that was interesting to me as far as like, and again, self-awareness is critical to this. So if I look, looking back at it, I would apply some of what I did, but I'd also have even more thought around it. But I was like, Hey, there's hard days and there's easy days. And my whole thought was, well, going into the last 12 months of my collegiate career, and I had this huge breakthrough. But the thing that was interesting about that breakthrough was my approach to my training. If it was a hard day, it was as hard as I could possibly make it. On those days, I was willing to die. On the easy days, I was a turtle. I was a snail. I was like, hey, I'm going as easy as I possibly can because all I cared about was Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturdays. That's all that I cared about. I said, those other four days, I am recovering because I knew I was going hard. It's possibly could the very next day. Every other day was like the day to die. 
And every other day was that was the day to recover between. So, and, and that formula worked because I, I respected recovery days and I honored hard days. So that was kind of like the thing that dawned on me. And I didn't know where that was going to take me when I made that decision. And I clearly remember when I made the decision, but I think you're right, Peter. I think you're right that people need to realize that idea or embrace that concept, because if you can I think you're going to discover that there's a whole lot more inside of you that you really want to tap into, but that you didn't give yourself a chance to tap into because you weren't willing to go for it, really go all out for it. Yeah, totally agree. And you know what? I think that the internet now has allowed that barrier between what you are or where you are in your training or where you are in your ability level and and what's out there. Those walls are totally broken down. Everyone Mm -hmm. with any effort at all could see, you know, how you kind of lie in that. And I think that's why we have that kid just ran like 356 or something for the mile. He's like a junior in high school. I was looking, he was like the, what, the 12th or something person that's broken four in the mile. There was three of them when we were in high school and they were like these icons. And then legends from the 60s another, and 70s, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. A yeah. bunch of years for Webb to do it. And then another 10 years for another guy to do it. Like, you know what I mean? Now it's not like they're giving them away, but you know, it's, it's, everybody's getting faster. It's because there's this great well of information that's out yeah. there. You don't have to go around the other side of the world to find the Sizzler restaurant and nobody's there and uh, to discover that it's it's right there for you. Well, there's something but John, about- it's interesting that um, what you were just saying about the easy thing on the easy days. I first got into that notion again, same as you, like in college, we started doing the, a couple of my buddies doing the real, you know, sloggy, easy days and it worked great. And then years later, I had kind of forgotten about it. When I was on the farm team, we just drill the easy days. And and then when I started running for Jack Daniels, he, he was, came to Sanford for a year. And so he was coaching me my first time at the marathon. And he didn't necessarily have an opinion on the easy, easy stuff, but he did have an opinion that, you know, higher mileage gets you good at the marathon, which I completely concur with. It's hard to do without that. Yeah. But the trick that I sort of, my little hack on it was, Jack would give us these really hard workouts and the long runs were hard. Everything is brutal, but you also need to do the high mileage. So my trick was, I'm just going to go really slow and run 14 miles on my easy day, really slow. Cause I need to do that to get my mileage to 120 or 130, whatever it's going to be for the week. Right. But if that a day in between it had to be slow because I was, you know, the combination of the hard work on the work days and then the easy days being slow, you had to accumulate a lot of miles in your legs. And looking back at my old training logs, which I hadn't done in years, but I was just moving the box and I took them out. And there's a clear connection to the better performances and the time when I, I had 12, 14, 16, 25 weeks in a row of unbroken, really steady, high mileage running. No. That was what made a difference. I've been right. writing about this recently and I published a book. Everybody who listens to the podcast knows I bring it up every episode. So everybody should go out and buy my book. But the thing is, there's <laughs> the whole thing about getting really good. It's fundamentally about sustaining a feedback loop of training where every day you're getting just a tiny bit better, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of the core components of that is the recovery. And I think as a young and experienced athlete, we tend to not recover because we see those easy runs as a way to game the system. Like if I do these harder... Now I'm doing hard workouts every day, right? And I'm going to get that much better. But there's a a lack of perspective in that that recovery is what you need to get the benefits from the hard runs, right? All the benefits go away if you sort of run them out of your legs on the easy days. And I think there's a lot of parallels to this with everything you're doing. It's like 
focus on the quality when the quality is most important. And then the idea of, well, I, I guess the idea of quality for me is that a high quality easy day is actually being easy and recovering, right? That's where the quality actually is, not in terms of trying to overly push it. So it doesn't surprise me when you say that you, when you look at the string of 25 weeks, well, the thing is 25 weeks is a long time and you're not going to get the benefit after 10 weeks, or you're not going to get the benefit after 14 weeks. But Maybe in the 20th to 25th week, all of a sudden, all that good work you did for the past time is now really starting to kick in. No, yeah, absolutely. And then you string years together, but it's not like it's consecutive. You do take your breaks in there, but it's thoughtful breaks. It's planned breaks and not the, I jacked my calf and now I got to sit down for three weeks kind of break. Right. Which is what happens to me now. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, yep. but, uh, yeah, it's that consistency. It really is. And uh, it's like a snowball thing. It, there's a book, a, a biography of Warren Buffett called Snowball that uh, I keep coming back to that term because it's so adept at like this idea of, you know, the really big things in life. And for him, it's investing, but for running, it's equally applicable. It's kind of the compounding effect of all the years of being consistent and just not screwing up. And it's iterative too, because you're always going to have to make adjustments along the way. You can't do it the same way you did before. And it's a tricky thing. Can I ask you, Peter, did, do you think you understood that when you were younger, the, the compounding effect of it, like when you were in high school or when you were in college? Because you were obviously doing, maybe not to the level you got to with the sophistication and, and the advanced nature you got to when you were really as a marathoner, but you were obviously doing the work. You trusted at that time that doing the work was going to pay off for you. So do you think you had a, a sense of that or direct knowledge? Was that explained to you when you were young in a way that you understood and sort of embraced? Not exactly, but there was a slightly different mentality that I had I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. But I remember reading, this is a weird segue, but I was listening to an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda, the Hamilton guy. Mm -hmm. um, and he was talking about when he was a kid, he was super into musical theater and he was like writing stuff and listening to stuff. And that was his thing. Right. And he was saying how, I don't remember his parents or somebody was telling him, essentially he was using his own analogy to describe what they were saying, but it was basically if there's a lane that you're in and you're clearly better or more into it or whatever than anyone else, you need to stay in that lane and go absolutely as freaking hard as you can go in that lane. Because hmm. if it's a differentiator and, and you already have the lead and, and you're enthusiastic about it and it's fun and you just pour everything onto that fire. And that was his description for it. And that was my mentality for high school, college and my entire professional career was if I can pour more into the way that I was training, the, the differences that I was able to pull out of my training. I, I think of the, you know, for a lot of my professional career, there was three guys who were way ahead of me in the events I was doing in the US. It was Meb, it was Avdi, and it was Alan Culpepper. Mm -hmm. um, they were the three best by a, a long shot. There were a couple other guys that were kind of trying to get to that level. I was distinctly below that level. And they were always way ahead. And it was like, how do I close that gap for them? It wasn't like I was willing to give away anything to them. It wasn't like I would start the race and say, like, Neb's going to just kill me. He would, but it wasn't like I was giving it away to him. Mm -hmm. um, but he was just better than me. Like, how do you close that gap? It doesn't matter if it's running. It can be anything in life. And for me, it was, okay, I know how to do the workout parts. I have a great coach who's, who's guiding me in that. The system clearly works because I'm improving. I'm still not closing the gap because they're improving too. But as long as I keep going for it and trying to do a little bit more, can I take my mileage from 120 to 130? Can I fold in a little bit of altitude training? Like, what are these things that I can do 
they're going to try to close that gap, that impossible gap, which <laughs> ended up never closing. <laughs> I think this what I'm about to say will kind of allow us to explore some stories and experiences that stand out for you about your marathon career. But it's so funny before our, our call with you today, I always try to write down a couple of things in terms of what I feel are some central themes before the conversation happens that I feel I get from the guests that we're having on. And it's so funny to me. I wrote that we can all achieve extraordinary results if we're patient enough and if we're persistent enough. I felt like that was a theme that for me, I get from you. When I think of Peter Gilmore, I think of patience. I think of persistence. I think of in many ways, a word that people could use is like having the faith or the belief in the process, you know, and just buying into that requirement in order to be successful at some point in this sport. And I feel like that's why you were so successful. The successes that you did have is that you kind of bought into the necessity to be patient and persistent. Would you say that that's true? And would you say that that's a reflection of why you were successful as a marathoner? I would. First of all, thank you. That's a nice thing to say. Um, I think the one part that in the moment, persistent, definitely. Yeah. Um, in the moment, I, I felt like I was not super patient. I mean, I was willing to say, here's the 16 week plan that's going to get you to the New York City Marathon. Here's, you know, all that. I was okay with that. And I was okay with the fact that if I could have a PR of a minute or two minutes or whatever, that was terrific. But I was vigorously impatient with the lack of being the best. I was super driven by that. It's a weird thing because you have the sense of self-satisfaction when you accomplish whatever the mini goals or the bigger goals that you're going after. And I would say that there's one part of the patience equation. It's not exactly patience, but it was a huge attribute. And I don't know how exactly to define it, but mm -hmm. unlike a lot of other events in track and field or in any sport, when you run a marathon, you're a marathon runner, at least at the level I was at, you really have two chances a year to go to work. Two, two, two days a week mm -hmm. or two days a year you go to work, right? There's maybe three if you're really trying to squeeze in, like you, if you have a chance to go to a, a championship in the summer or something, but really it's spring and fall. So everything happens on those days and all your training's built up to it. You have to deliver on those days. And for whatever reason, I had some ability that was, I would say, a little bit better than average at being able to put all my eggs into that basket and deliver on a consistent basis. And a lot of guys had had issues with that. And it, some of it was being more analytical, I think, and ironing out some of the variables that were tripping people up and tripping myself up and trying to eliminate those on that race day. And patience is a part of that. It's understanding that you got to be chill in the days before that everything's done properly, but at the same time, being vigilant that your water bottles are there with you and you've given them to the race director and they're going to put them out in the right place and you got the right food and your hotel setup is proper and the flight, you pick the best flight to get to the race because you don't want to have it screwy and be delayed and all that stuff. It, there's just a lot of factors that went into it. And, and for whatever reason, mentally, I think I, I had a, a good skill at doing that. So yeah. Peter, I think there's a little bit of a connection we have, and I want to kind of come back to it a little bit because I, it leads to a question I wanted to ask you about this. Our connection is not, you, you know, John from a long time ago, having the same agent, all, a lot of shared experiences. You and I never really met. We competed against each other for a couple of years in college, but you were always better than me. At that time, I hadn't really had my breakthrough. I was sort of struggling and trying to just make sure I was on the team and, you know, at that level where you're trying to figure things out. And our connection is that you were in many ways, a very strong inspiration for me, believing that I could have that breakthrough, that I could get to a much higher level than I was at. And 
there's this concept called self-efficacy. I don't know if you've studied it, but it's this notion of what you believe you can do if you put the effort into it. And one of the ways that you can boost your self-efficacy is by finding someone who you relate to and then sort of seeing what they've done and then using that as a proxy for what you believe you can do. And so I'm at UCLA, you're at Cal, you're finishing in the top, you know, top 10 in the pack 10s. And, and in, like you said, these are all Olympians. These are Mebs, Bernard the God. Yeah, I don't know, you know, the Hauser brothers, all these guys, and you're up there with them. And I'm in the back, but I would watch you and I would say, look, he ran 915 in high school. I ran 922. Like that's not that different, right? I'm sort of like, I, he looks like me. He runs like me. He's not the most talented guy. If he can do it, I have to be able to do it too. And I had a teammate, Will Bernaldo, who we, we trained a lot together because we were sort of the longer 10K guys. And we would on, on talks to be like, look, if Peter can do it, I can too, right? And that was like our mantra for like a whole year. And, and I spent an entire summer <laughs> effectively saying every time the workout was hard or every time I was sort of, you know, you go through this, this like, oh, I got this niggling pain. I'm, I'm not sure it's going to set me back or whatever these things are. I would be like, look, there's one thing I know. If Peter can do it, I can too. And, and it was this sort of, it's a funny thing because I've always drawn on that example whenever I explain it to people. I've probably talked about you to numerous younger runners and stuff. As an example, I had this guy that I keyed off of and I would see your success and think, well, maybe I'm not doing enough because look what he's able to do, right? Anyway, I'm going on about this, but I wanted to share it with you in part because we do have that connection, whether you knew it or not. But the second part is I'm curious did you have that from somebody else? Like, were you looking at somebody else and saying, look, I just don't see that guy being any different than me. I got to be able to do what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. The guy that comes to mind first uh, of all is Brian Sell. This didn't happen until later, till like 2004, probably. My first marathon, my debut was Chicago in 02. So the end of 02. So I'd run Chicago 02, I dropped out of Boston the next spring. And I ran one more Chicago the next fall. And it was the following spring. So spring of 04 was the marathon trials for the Olympics at the Athens Olympics. And Brian that day went out and had the lead for a long time, like 18, 20 miles, and then just got crushed. I mean, he bonked like nobody's ever seen and was, you know, walking in at the end, but he went for it. He was the bullfighter with the red cape. He was way out ahead. And just a year later, he was running 213 and then 210. And then he was cranking out 210s and making an Olympic team. Yep. And it was the same thing. I mean, here's a guy who, you know, nobody ever heard of in high school or college. And we happened to be friends. We got along great. And whenever we go on trips and stuff, we'd hang out. And I, I love the guy. He's great. But here, here he's cranking out these amazing performances. And he, I know how he's doing it too. I know what his training is. I know all his teammates. And it's the same thing. It was like, geez, he's out there cranking these 20 milers out and he's doing them harder than me. And he's getting these great consistent results. And it was the same, a very similar sort of uh, mental thing where, you know, Brian, got me through a lot of tough workouts, put it that way. Yeah, no, I, I love it. I think there's a big difference between you and me and, and it's a credit to you is that your persistence or your passion for it or your, your desire to be the best was just much stronger than mine. I think self-efficacy is one of those things where there's a lot of value to it in the sense of it removes some barriers and, and physically, maybe I don't know that there was much difference between us in terms of talent, physical talent and stuff, but I, I can see clearly the mental approach that you took to the sport was just so much more attuned to what you needed to be really great. And it's a testament to you. I have always admired that about what you did because I, I look at, you said this throughout the, the interview, you were in high school and you could clearly see the guys who were better than you. I know your experience. I relate to it in the Pac-10 where we're all out there running and there's future Olympians. There, there's current Olympians sometimes in the race, right? <laughs> you could see the difference and then you go to the pros, but you never really let that stop you. Like you 
you just took that as another challenge to overcome and try to figure that out. And it's the part that I have always admired. And it's kind of like the defining characteristic for me when I think of you is that you didn't settle for somebody being better than you just because they were already more accomplished or potentially more talented than you were in terms of what you were trying to do. Um, you said earlier also, you got on the line and you weren't going to give it to Meb, like you weren't going to let that go and stuff. But when you towed the line, how, what was your approach? When you got into those marathons, were you focused more on the competition or just your own race? My own race in a certain way. Now, what I'm talking about is like the big city marathons. For me, it was sort of like basically between 0405 and and say 2008, 2009 was, was my big years um, in Boston, New York, some of the other ones. The marathon is different because the mistakes that a lot of people make happen at the beginning of the race and they don't realize it till the end of the race. And it happens with fantastically talented runners. It happens with novice runners. They make the same mistakes because the pain, the data you get in your mind on the pain level that you should be feeling is not a clear expression of um, where, what you should be feeling unless you've experienced it for a long time. I always thought that one of my, my best tricks was I was really sensitive to the pain of the marathon. And that mm. made me go slower when I needed to go slower and had a better, more dialed in for the whole distance. And other guys could just kind of blow through that pain that they were used to doing 10Ks and stuff. And they'd come through a marathon and they thought they felt fine through 18 or something like that. And then they found out that they really you know, we're in trouble a mile yeah. or two later. But getting back to your question, yeah, at the starting line, it was very composed. It was like, here are the things that I need to focus on. But I think more importantly, it was very detail oriented. It was like, are my shoes tight? Are they double knotted? Do I know where my water bottles are? Because those races, there's like eight, 10, 20 tables with the waters on them. And do I know which one line's at? Like, where's my plan? Like, who am I going to try and run with through the first part of this thing? Like, do they know I'm going to try and run with them? Um, am I not going to trip at the start? It's very like process oriented in the beginning because any one of those things, like I said earlier, you're working two days a year. And of those two days, it's like two hours of work on these two days a year. Like, don't screw it up. Don't let some dumb little thing screw it up. And so it's very much thinking about that and just kind of getting through those early miles of the race with as little effort as possible without screwing up the pace. And the best races for me were the ones when I had friends to run with through a lot of those miles. Um, mm -hmm. And one of my PR in Boston was 06 and Brian Sell and I traded miles for a lot of that. Or maybe it was half miles. I can't remember. We were going back and forth for, you know, 10, 13 miles of that. Jason Lemcool, another guy I ran a lot of races with, did the same thing with me the year later at Boston. One of the trials I did it with Clint Barron, another Hanson's guy, where we both had gotten dropped off the lead pack. And we both clawed back a bunch of guys because we spent about eight miles sharing two minutes, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes in the lead. And it worked. We, we got a lot of people back. But yeah, you know, it, it was very, like I said, process-oriented, keeping your head down and, and, and thinking about the things that you want to eliminate as variables that could take you out that day. I have one more question before we sort of transition to the close of this. And it has to do with a decision you made in 2007. I remember this at the time, and I remember reading about it, doing some research now before we prepped. And there's a New York Times article in 2007, you were sort of working part-time, trying to make ends meet. I mean, the life of a professional distance runner, you don't make a ton of money doing it, right? So most of these guys are doing other jobs on the side, substitute teaching or whatever they do to pay the bills. And you made a decision to sort of quit all that stuff and really go all in. And I just wanted to ask if you could sort of talk us through how your life was like there and how you made that decision. What compelled you to say, I'm 100% going all in? Well, for years before that, I did all the other jobs. I mean, I did everything. I was a shoe store, substitute teacher, 
open the gym at the elementary school after school and sit there for three hours and lock it up at coaching little clubs. I would basically do any little part-time job that would come along and it was lean for a long time. You'd be happy to go to a race and make a few hundred bucks. And as I got better in the marathons, the paychecks got a little bit better. So that decision could not have been made if it wasn't for having more success and getting a couple of endorsement deals that allowed me to make that decision. It did open up different doors too, because then I got to the point where I would go to Flagstaff because they had a training center there that offered financial supports. I'd go there for a three-week stint a few times a year. That was super helpful. Couldn't have done that if I was you know, doing some part-time thing back at home. So yeah, it was sort of like, here's my chance. Fall of 07 was the trials. Um, that was the fittest I was. I had a great season that summer and fall. I mean, I was in super good shape, but yeah, I got sick before the race and it didn't work out. It was really crushing, but it was there. I had done all the stuff right, put it that way. Mm-hmm. And that decision you talked about was part of that. Part of getting it all right was was the altitude component, was taking care of the sleep and all the other things. And I got a really bad injury that summer. I got plantar fasciitis for the first time in my life, but I was oh. able to get rid of it. I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I had enough time and space in my life to to deal with that at a time when it really mattered. Like that was crunch time career-wise for me. So it worked. In the end, it <laughs> Ultimately, it didn't work out because the results weren't there because I didn't convert on that Olympic trials, making the team and stuff. But in the, sometimes you have to think of those things separately. If you yeah. made good decisions, but the result was bad, it doesn't necessarily mean the decision was bad. Actually, I think well, that's really important. It's just yeah. so important that that there are aspects of the final result that are outside of your control. And all you can really control is the process and decisions that, that you made going into it. And it's really tough when those results don't go well. I just think about poker players in this case, you can make all the bets the right way and still lose because you play the odds and, and sometimes you get a bad, a bad beat. Right. But okay. Let me tell you a funny story real quick sure, before we sure. wrap up. Um, John, you'll appreciate this, especially. So I started doing master's running a couple of years ago, guys at West Valley track club. They're really fun. And they've got a lot of guys I knew from the past and they're really into the master's cross country championship, the U S champs, which is about the most fun race in the country every year. And the goal is to win the master's team title. And I was one of the guys I thought I had a shot at winning the individual title too. This is in Pennsylvania, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, you know, classic cross country course have been raining and stuff with muddy, um, 10 K. So I'm out there, you know, race starts going along just, you know, the group starts kind of winnowing down about four miles in this guy comes up and like pats me on the butt and the, this is the lead pack, right? We're running up this hill and it's uh, Jacques Salberg, who was the old, uh, client of Howie, who was our John and I's manager and great runner from, from LA. And, and he just gives me this little nod, like he had this big beanie on. And I, I was so happy. It's four miles in the race. I thought the happy is I hadn't seen the guy in years. So it was, it was this, hey, how you doing? As much as you can say with a nod and, and a, a smile in the middle of a race when you're exhausted. And so fast forward a mile, mile and a half, right? Now we're getting right down to it. There's about a kilometer left with a big uphill, a big downhill, and then a sprint into the finish. And the pack had really winnowed down, but I was still feeling pretty good. So I take off and gap everybody going up the hill. And I've always been a really good downhill runner. I know I could run really, really fast downhills. And I had watched Jacques, the, I knew he was right there too. I'd watched him the first time down the hill. It wasn't looking too good going down the hill. I thought, all right, if I can gap him on the uphill, there's no way he's getting any ground on me in this downhill. I'm just going to cruise in and win this thing. And so I, I take off. It all works great. I'm going down the hill. I get kind of toward the bottom of the hill. I look over my shoulder. He's like still like five steps behind me. Like I hadn't put any room on him. And I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> <laughs> this, this, this could be a problem for me now. Yeah. Yeah. I just played all my cards. I made all the right decisions. Getting back to what we were talking about earlier. I, I analyzed the course. I knew I was feeling good. I knew what I was good at. I sort of thought I knew what he wasn't good at. And those things dovetailed really well. 
And I put all my cards in and I turned around with like quarter mile to go. And he's like right there. <laughs> and I had already spent all my energy on this plan that, you know, theoretically was going to work great. And it worked great for about another 20 seconds. Then he went flying by me and won the championship <laughs> and I was second. <laughs> oh my gosh. But yeah. the same thing, it was, it, you know, it was great. We, we chatted for, we had a great cool down afterwards. I love the guy to death, but he, uh, Jacques is like, the best. Jacques I played is every the card best. right. Yeah. All the right decisions, all the right process and got beaten. You got You got to <laughs> love Jacques, man. Yeah. Take your hat off to the guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, what a great story, man. Oh my gosh. Well, I swear there's so much that I want to talk about. This has been a fun conversation. So many great takeaways. I love having Brian ask the last question, so I'll let him do that. Or if he has another question before our last question, but I just want to say for sure, the insight to your journey, talking about going to Kenya, everything from just the way that you looked at things as you were going from high school to college to running professionally, growing in, as a marathoner. Cool stuff, man. Seriously, Peter, I, I didn't know it to this extent, but a lot of what you've shared, I really feel there's a lot of truth and nuggets that could be applicable to running and outside of running. So I don't know. I, I hope we could do this again at some point in the future because I feel like there's a lot of insight that you just have a really good handle on that would add a lot of value to anybody as far as our listeners go. So Thanks for joining us today, man. I've learned a lot for sure. Well, thank you, John. Oh, very kind words. I appreciate it. It's been a blast, not just here, but also the time that we spent racing and getting to know you back in the day. It was really fun, inspirational watching you take down all those titles. Hey, man, I had my little run too. And I, I can relate sure so much to your journey and a lot of what you've shared today. So thanks, Peter. Appreciate it, man. Peter, we always end our podcast with the same question. And our brand is Go Be More. And what do the words Go Be More mean to you? So I think the obvious answer is a lot of what we had just talked about, where it's, where am I at? How can I get to the next thing where I want to be? And whatever that might be in your life, doesn't have to be running. But I think that the better answer maybe is, is not being afraid to be different in either the way you do things or the way you think about things, the way you express yourself to get to achieve that. It's okay to be different as long as you understand that you have the self-confidence to do that and to do it for a while. And I think being more is, is being more about being who you are. Throughout all that stuff we talked about for years was very much me being me. And I wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't me being me. And I try to keep that in mind in work stuff now, in my own little rinky-dink master's running attempts. I don't mean to demean them, but it's a perspective that you have when you're in your mid-40s and you can't do what you used to be able to do, but you still love it. So you want to go out there and have fun doing it. But you got to be yourself in the whole thing and, and figure out a way to be more by being different, by being more about yourself. And if you can merge those things, you know, great things can be achieved. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. It was just a real pleasure. Long time coming for me to be able to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, John. Thank you. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed that conversation and you want to send us feedback directly, my email is brian at gobimore.co. A big thank you to Michelle at Creatives Collective Marketing for assistance with editing and show notes. If you enjoy the pod, leave us a rating or review on iTunes or, even better, tell a friend. Whether it's this episode or a past favorite, share it with someone and help them to go be more inspired. And when you're ready to turn that inspiration into commitment, stop by our shop at gobemore.co and pick up a t-shirt to help remind you to stay committed to chasing your dreams every day. For all of us at Go Be More, 
We are what the world is chasing, and we hope this podcast helps you become what the world is chasing too. Thank you.